What do you mean by hit record status? Okay, uh, okay, I'll tell you this. I won't even go so far as to call it hit a gold record or uh, you know a million Spotify streams, which whatever the fuck that means. I'm talking more about a record that gets played by everybody in our community. You know, the hip hop community has always been tight and that that form of music has moved forward like a locomotive for one reason. Everybody's on board. If Busta Rhymes comes out with a record that's hot tomorrow produced by whoever the fuck it is, whether it's Pharrell for the moment, whoever it is, everybody who plays hip hop is playing that record. Across the board, you go to... Um, to Power 105, you know, uh, Power in LA, Hot 97, Funkmaster Flex, everybody's playing that record. Now, Lenny Fontana comes out with a house record that's got a buzz going. Louie might not play it. Timmy might not play it. Tenaglia might not play it. MK's doing uh, fucking raves for a million people. He may not play it. So we don't have that. Lenny plays Lenny. MK plays MK. Louie's playing Louie. Todd's playing Todd. So, so we have a community that's sitting there, oh, yeah, we're going to stick together. Oh, yeah, house is going to be the new thing. Yeah, no, not, not going to be nothing. We're getting further and further away from ever having... So you mean the word frag- you mean fragmentation is basically what happened. It's all fragmented now. Well, Everybody's listen, doing- I, I, I think there were very... You get a couple of records that, that kind of seep in the crowd. Oh, wow, this guy also played. Oh, wow, this guy played it. But there aren't, there aren't many. I think house the house scene is very broken up, and that now everybody's a producer. I mean, we used to say this in the in the late nineties. You know, when I started making records in ninety three, you know, there was a part of me like, oh shit, like I could actually make a record now, and I actually have a little bit of a fucking brain. Like I, I can't even imagine the way today is. I mean, it's everybody gets the same uh, same computer, same program, same plugins. Everything sounds the same. That's another thing. We're not, we're not getting hit records because we're not getting different records. Every record I had success with was a different sound. The Bomb, different. Funk Phenomena, different. Tori Amos, different. Everything but the girl. Well, that's not really different, but it was it was Todd being whatever the fuck he was doing. But the point was, everybody had different equipment. So when I would get a demo from Armand or whoever it would be, it's like, oh shit, Like you can tell there were different things working. You get a demo today from those same 20 guys, you'll start saying. Everything's clean. Everything's got the eight bar thing. There's nothing that's um, disrupting the quanti- quantization of whatever the computer's doing for you. The computer is correcting your mistakes. That Some of those mistakes used to work. Some of the distortion used to work. Things that you were doing in your bedroom that you couldn't control that might have, you know, the dirt of an SP-1200. Or that hum. That that was part of it. Furious George on my label, my boy, me and Nicky always laugh. I'm like, he used to, on one of the records he gave us, like on SP-1200, it kind of corrects everything. And he used to give us these demos. And once I was like, and he like, the thing would miss. I'm like, I don't even know that that's possible you could do that. But that was the beauty. I love that because it was so raw and it was so not polished. And that was, um, listen, the funniest thing is when Armand took the John Nick record, the captain, to make You Don't Know Me, that was a demo. Nicky brought that demo to my office, and I said, oh, that shit's fire. He goes, what do you mean? I says, we got to put that out. He goes, there's flange in the whole fucking thing. I said, no, we got to put that out. 
And and then Nikki, I gotta say, he always like I can do whatever I want to do. So I put that out on Todd's label with the flange going throughout the whole fucking thing. It was like a demo. And Armand called up and goes, Yo, man, I did this uh, track. I you know I used that record you did. And like, you know, who the fuck expected that to turn into what it turned into? Um, but you know, but that was a demo that Nikki did. And if you listen to the original, this flange going through the whole, we didn't even fucking mix it. But it was it was the groove and it was undeniable. And I think that that's that's still what gets me excited. I get demos all the time. I basically tell people, listen, if you give me something that I could do, I'm probably not gonna want it. But if you give me something I, I never thought of, I'll put that out. So you give me you flip a disco record with something I never thought of, you got it. We'll put that out. Well, if you're gonna give me just a generic fucking eight ball loop of the night the lights went out, that's not gonna get me excited. But you know, because Nikki and I, I mean, there aren't many records that we haven't touched. So it's it's I'd like to see when people dig a little deeper and get crazier with this, you know, sample tracks and stuff. Like there is an art to it. Nikki and I, you know, I say this all the time. So many people in our genre have changed to try and accommodate people. Oh, the cutters are hot. Oh, tech. Ooh. And everybody's trying to chase the next thing. Nikki and I are making the same fucking records since 93. If you like them, come. We welcome you there. If you don't like them, don't fucking buy them. End of story. I'm not going to try to accommodate some 17-year-old kid who just found out about our house records through some fucking nonsense guy in his area. I'm not going to, I don't accommodate that. See what guy. I tell everybody? You come to I me. T- see what I'm I told t- you all? Nikki and see I. See what I said? He's not going to hold back. See what I Listen, if, if Nikki and I make a record of 20 years from now, they're going to be the same records. You like them? Come get them. The beautiful. You don't like them? Go to somebody I, else. I can't even go into this yet. I need to roll the tapes. Let's the roll back. We got to real to real. Bring the real to real back. I got to go back to the Plaza Suite. You went way too far. Yeah, killing me over here. I'm going. Got to keep you on track because I need to get all of it. Okay. You work three switches. You get the DJ. Yes. His sister's Sweet Sixteen. You move forward. You. I guess you start doing mobile work. Come on. Well, I was doing. I was doing mobile even before I met Danny early on. So from eighty to eighty two, I was doing a lot of mobile. Once I got the taste in the club, obviously, it was hard to go back to the mobile head. But I still had mobile work that I would do, obviously, for money. I mean, back then, a couple of hundred dollars, a couple of hundred dollars, and that was a big situation. Plus, having a record habit, my, my drug habit was records. You needed to pay off the records and stuff. So um, I was doing that, and um, I, I kept, you know, and I tried to make different connections with record people and DJs. The one thing I will say, as you know, everybody's a DJ today. When I first started spinning 79, 1980 in Brooklyn, I got to tell you, we had, there had to be 40, 50 DJs in the neighborhood. Like I look back and say, shit, we had so many DJs and you know, there were some good ones, you know, there were a couple, but I made a lot of friends. My boy, Sal de Benedetto, which, you know, we were 10, 11 years old. We were still boys. And, you know, we met through music. I met Nikki actually in 82. Um, I knew of Nikki, but we actually connected in 82, but yeah, I always met. And the other thing was I wrote graffiti for a long time and graffiti in the seventies as a kid, we were there for like the birth of graffiti. So even though we were a lot younger, 
we were doing what we were doing and trains and poles and blah, blah, blah. And that got me to the black and the urban areas and the Puerto Rican areas. And that's when I really was lit up musically. I was like, shit, like this is, I'm at a party with all black guys and I'm like the only white guy. And I'm listening to these DJs playing shit I've never heard before. Then I go to like a Puerto Rican roller rink called Park Circle and these fucking Puerto Ricans are just doing magic on the on the dance floor with skates, crazy shit. I would just sit back in shock, and all of this music was just coming to me. Now I get it, and I present it to my people and my gigs, whether it's mobile or club, and I love that. And it was opening. It was just everything to me was a door to the next thing. I never had, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm prejudiced against like, you know, I hate everybody equally. I love everybody equally. So I don't have like, oh, I hate this group of people. Like that would be the most moronic thing in the world because you get so much from everybody. There were so many things and so many people and situations that you need to be in. And, you know, I was lucky enough to know in the moment, a lot of the time, because a lot of times you don't, know it when you're in the moment of how great something is but almost every one of those times where i was uncomfortable at first i'm like i'm gonna get fucking killed over here when i got past that part i'm like this is incredible this is like this is a culture this is something i would have never known if i didn't write graffiti if i didn't hang out with this guy right here he and i would have never would have turned me on to this guy who now has me in this place in red hook so I was very thankful for the opportunity. You know what? I'm going to say one thing. Opportunity is everything. I, I, You know, the more I think about it, I wrote two books. I'm in the process of writing a couple other ones. But I got to say, opportunity is everything. And it is so hard. You got that it, book in front of you? Put it up. I'm going to show a couple. Well, yeah, listen, people, you go to Amazon, people, we, got, right? we got Journey into uh, Music, Coloring, Other Situations, Phenomenal Book, all about a lot of my record collection, picture disc, colored vinyl. Um, the seven inch market's hot. You got to get this, which is from I left my heart in San Francisco to I lost my wallet in El Segundo. Um, crazy seven inch rarities that you're never going to see. Um, both of them available on Amazon.com. Lenny Fontana, I think, is going to buy the first 50 people who uh, put they do something in the comments. Lenny Fontana is buying them both for Christmas. The first <laughs> yeah. 50 people I heard. Everybody so, gets um, a book. Free to it. It's like, everybody, 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 everybody wait, 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 hold on. Hold on, everybody. Look under your chair. Yes, exactly. You <laughs> have number five <laughs> on your chair. You get the books. So, but I, I do believe opportunity is everything. And um, you have to take advantage of the opportunity. And it's, it's hard. It's hard. To get the opportunity, I can kind of go, I could segue into my jobs if you want me to go into that situation. Well, I want to um, know, I want to know the transition. You know, okay, I know you played Pallets. I know you played some of the Queens clubs. I know you were around, you know, give us that, those yes. times. Because okay. I know you, I know you're breaking into the business. Like we all were. We were all yes. breaking our asses so, again. So, so come on. So, so a very, very key person in my life to this day Love him to death, my man Juan Cato. And um, I was in RPBC, Eddie Rivera's record pool. Oh, nice. That was, was quick there. Um, and Juan and I were in RPBC. And one day I was up there. I was up there a couple of months before he started. And he comes up one day and yeah, I introduced myself. He goes, yeah, I'm Juan. I spent at Lamore East in Queens. 
And we we just we had one of those relationships. We just instantly hit it off. And Juan's been like my brother since that day. And um, I went to his clubs and I got to know him and I saw what he was doing. What he was doing at the freestyle era was unheard of. Nobody did what he did. Uh, you know, Latin Rascals, TK India on the stage. Like, you know, he was he was behind some iconic stuff. And I see all these people doing freestyle things and the freestyle resurgence. Juan is a guy that was so key, um, you know, the, the the bookings and the setting and making sure the accommodations were done. And and then he introduced me to people and I would go with him. And Juan was a guy that was wired. So we'd go to Mickey Garcia and Mick Mack. He'd take me to the labels with him. And um, he really liked the way I spun. And he felt that when he saw me playing everything, he was like, you know what? I want to take the back seat. I want you to be the DJ. We're going to do the promotion. So he and this guy, Vinny Grillo, got me on stage in Staten Island and Pals and Queens and other clubs, Bora Bora on Steinway Street. And we had a bunch of places. And to this day, I mean, Juan helped me with these both books. He, you know, he's co-writer and co-producer of the whole thing and um, still makes records. He's relaunching Digital Dungeon. And he, um, one of, I think my favorite things about Juan is you know, he never tells me no. You know, I have a million ideas and I kind of talk myself out of them. If I was like, yo, Juan, like, you know, we have to go build a fucking 24-story building. He's like, all right, let's go. Like, never tells me no. And I love that about him. And, and he knows a lot, man. And he's an educated guy and musically knows his stuff, artistic, just all around, you know, and he he's did a lot for me. And he was very, very influential with me in that mid to late, you know, latter eighties. And then, um, you know, through him, I met Chris Barbosa. Chris Barbosa became a very dear friend of mine and Chris got tight and George Lamond in 1990, um, they had signed him, well, George Garcia, but became George Lamond. And he had this record release party, um, for the band of the heart remix. And while I was there, I saw Todd, and, and Todd was always the guy to introduce everybody to everybody. And um, I was there, and he had just put out the Finger Trips record. And it was a record by this guy, Kenny Gonzalez. I'm like, yo, what's that chrome? My record's hot. I says, who's that guy, Kenny? So he pointed. He goes, yo, he's right there. So I walk over to him. I had no idea who he was. I said, yo, I'm Johnny D. I'm Kenny Dope, blah, blah, blah. And we became like brothers. It was... Um, it was kind of an instant thing. He was working at the record store on 50, um, 5th Avenue in Brooklyn. I was in court stenography school and he had just, he was just about to start doing records with Louie at that point. That was like 1990. And then he and I just grew to friendship and stuff and, um, watching him make records and stuff. Um, in 1993, he said, listen, you got to start making records. And he taught us things and, you know, he was just, you know, a fucking absolute genius and uh, unbelievable guy to learn under because he, he was just, you know, another guy, you know, talent wise, you just, when you work in the studio with certain people and you watch how they operate, it's, um, you, you don't get the impression that they even know how good they are. And I would watch Kenny do things that, you know, would just, and this is pre all the bullshit, pretty SSL board, like, you know, the most ghetto shit. And he was doing stuff that was just iconic. And um, he taught me and Nikki how to do things. 
And then we started making our records. And then in 94, um, I, I guess we'll go, we'll go back and forth, but I figured while we're on this, I'll keep moving. In 94, um, Tommy Musto and I had gotten very close for the previous couple of years. And we went to see Louie one night, Sound Factory Ball during a snowstorm, because Wednesday night, rain or snow, you were at Sound Factory Ball. No, I was that Louie was the church. You know, I was where everybody was on a Wednesday. And um, Tommy and I went for dinner. We went there at three o'clock in the morning. We left and the whole night. I was like, yo, I, I feel these house labels are hitting the wall. And he's like, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you start your label yourself? So he goes, listen, I'll do your distribution. You sign everything. And um, shook on it. We shook hands. And that was the birth of Henry Street. And I went to Kenny, who was like my boy at that time. And we were very close. And he gave me my first record. And he was like, yo, you know, and he, you know, instantly got, you know, visibility worldwide. And then from there, and I just, you know, I had a lot of connections I was making at that time. And things just started to flow. And, you know, that obviously I had big success down the road. But um, it was, you know, very organic and... I didn't set out, oh, I'm going to make money. I'm going to be rich. It was really all, I think I could do things better than what's out there. I think I know this. Now, I was working at Sin in 1992, which was Street Information Network, which is a promotion company. And as I'm working as a promotion person, I'm promoting incredible records and I'm promoting, and I'm promoting incredibly garbage records. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, you know, this, I guess, was feeding me as far as a guy who's about to make records with my equipment and a guy who wants it. When I start my label, I'm like, wow, there's so many mistakes people are making and they're just wasting, just wasting time. And I was very focused on how I wanted the label to have a certain sound. And um, my philosophy with Henry Street, I remember I was getting a lot of these house records with these guys playing keyboards. And I was like, they play keyboards on top of like a salsa record. And I'm like, how are you going to, you know, draw a mustache on the Picasso? Like, how are you going to Vince Montana loop and you're putting some bullshit keyboard sound on top of it? I was like, I just didn't even stand that. So I was like, if I take a disco record from 20 years ago and I make it sound hot today, I'll get 20 more years out of it. That was it. That was the flaw. It was nothing to do with I want to rob people. If anything, I was paying hom you know, homage, homage to these people and these producers and everything it was there was no disrespect meant whatsoever and um you know then a lot of people started doing the disco thing i mean i think nikki and i our production is pretty we're kind of in a class of our own as far as the way we make the records we also hear them a different way you know i think when kenny you know gave me the bomb you know which is you know a tremendous record for the label and everything um i would have never i would have never heard street player that way so kenny doing that was exactly what I said before. I would have never done that. So that was what the beauty, I mean, of course, it was a tremendous record, but the beauty of it as a person who was also making records, I'm like, I would have never touched that. And you did that. So he heard that that way because he didn't necessarily know that record the way I did. So I think that's another thing where we were all into different types of music. I mean, Kenny was a big guy with breaks and beats and Latin stuff and house. And, you know, he was very rich in other areas where I was the pop disco kind of R&B. So I think together when, when we would, I always said, if we combined our stuff together, um, that that's a pretty impressive situation because we both together, um, I think we cover every note 
in the history of music. Let's also talk about Street Information Network, Vince Pellegrino. I guess that's where you get your teeth into understanding how the, the behind the scenes works. Well, the- yeah, I, I tell you, I think Tony Monty, you know, the first day I'm working there, he sits me down and he says, listen, the first thing you got to know about the music business, it's got nothing to do with the music. And, you know, very, very important, important thing to tell me. And really horrible thing to to kind of go over in your head because you realize that there are so many factors. You know, people think, oh, I'm going to get this producer and I'm going to do it at this studio. We're going to use this microphone. We're going to get this fucking drummer. And, this. and you, you know, you put all this shit together. What does Outcast say? You could, you know, you could plan the best fucking picnic, but you can't predict the weather, whatever. It's like, you could do all this shit, but if the man upstairs <laughs> isn't going to give you the bat- the nod, it's not going to happen. So I, I think I learned working at Sin that you have to plant a lot of seeds. You know, I've had records on Hemisphere that have sold 300 copies that are my favorite records that nobody gave a shit about. I've had records on Atlantic that were my favorite fucking records I did. I you know, had hundreds of records there that sold three copies. I didn't get caught up in, oh, this was a success, so it's my favorite. Obviously, when you have the success, it's great. But what does the success do? It gives you the opportunity to do more shit. When I was at Atlantic Record, well, I'll go back to Sin, but I'll get to Atlantic. When I was at Sin, I had a lot of friends at different labels. So I was I was doing promotion, but I was also helping people with A&R because I was very wired to people in the studio. I was with Kenny almost. I mean, we were in the studio all week. There was always something going on. And between Kenny and Louie from 91, I mean, they, those guys were literally, you know, seven days a week. They were always working on something. And, and then Tommy Musto as well, because I started Northcott in 94. So everybody around me had some kind of a situation going on that I was always there. And while I was at, Street Information Network, Rich Christina, who's a good friend of mine, was doing promotion at Atlantic and he was given everything but the girl. And they said I had to do mixes. So he sent it to me. I knew the record and I, I, I knew of the group. I knew there were a folk group and stuff like that. And I went to Todd. I was very close with Todd at the time. And Todd didn't want to do it. The budget was horrible. And Todd just did. I says, listen, Todd, this record, it's like, you know, it's great. The thing about the thing about the remix that's so important that people don't realize, it's not what he did, but it's what he didn't do. Because it's one of the most minimal mixes he's ever done. He did correct the piece that nobody ever discusses. There was a part that was fucked up with the album version that it's always kind of funny that nobody realizes it, but he corrected. Well, that was Bill Clack, the engineer, but there was a part that was corrected. But his minimal take on this mix, whether it was because he really didn't want to do it or in his head, he was getting paid so little money. But I knew the record was important. And when I got to Atlantic after that, I wound up servicing it five times and it wound up being a number two pop record. And it was Tracy Thorne speaks about the involvement, everything else in the book. But that record put Todd through the fucking stratosphere. At that point, he was, you know, so he didn't get a lot of money for it. But what it, what it did for him everywhere else was just, um, it was the biggest thing. I mean, Todd was on fire for years after that. And then, um, obviously, we discussed the Bucketheads, which um, Bucketheads was the fifth release on my label. And um, how that came about, which was uh, kind of a funny story, is I had um, Armand's release coming out on um, the Old School Junkies. It was the next release on Henry Street. And I was in the car. Tommy Musto 
myself and Kenny were in the car going over the Brooklyn Bridge. And I said, yo, Ken, you got to hear this new Armand record. And, I, and it really, it's like one of my favorite on the label to this day. Like, yo, you got to hear this shit, man. And we put the cassette in and, you know, Kenny's listening to it and like, he's not feeling it, you know, he, and, and he's, and he's not only is he not feeling it, but I think he's kind of pissed that I'm sweating Armand. I think there was, there was almost that, you know, you're my boy. Like, why, like, why are you, why, why are you sweating on mom? Like, what the fuck? Like, you, you're my boy. Like, what the fuck? It was, it was that. It was that kind of, it's like, you're my boy. Why the fuck are you, you know? I'm like, yo, this shit. And Oman, you know, he had that power where he gets me with records. That motherfucker, I had another guy in the studio that's just quick, gets it crazy, um, has a crazy way of working. And we connect, you know? Anyway, I played a record. And Kenny's just sitting there like, you know, totally not feeling the fucking thing. And the next day he calls me up. He goes, come downstairs, pulls up in front of my house and his green BMW puts the cassette in and we're looking down my block, which is the water, which is right, right you know, two blocks away from me is the water right by the fucking trade center. And I'm looking ahead and I'm hearing a five minute intro. <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, so the first minute goes by too. You know, by the four, I have no idea what the fuck. It's almost like, is he like punking me? Like, I don't even know what the fuck is going on at this point. But I mean, it's hard. It's it's his drums and, you know, finally, and it kicks in. And he's not looking at me. He's looking straight ahead for 15 fucking minutes, 14 minutes and 53 seconds, whatever the thing is. So it goes to the end. I see how that shit's incredible. I'm like, I, I don't know who the fuck is going to understand it, but it's fucking incredible. So he goes, yo, you got to put that shit out. And he gave me the B-side, and we put the record out. I wound up doing the edit, which, you know, which was a big thing, the three-minute edit, which was hard to do. And um, we put it out, and it, it really just, it, you know, I had put other records out before. I had four records before that, and they all were doing things. But this one was just, I remember Louie calling me from Italy. He's like, yo, nobody has your record here. Every time Louie would travel a different part of the world, yo, they don't have the record here. Everybody's selling out. And then uh, the Canadians, quality came to me. I licensed it to them. And the Italians came. And the Italians, you know, it's rough because I'm Italian. I love Italy. But, you know, you got to do, you know, you're going to get fucked with the Italians. So you say, so who's going to fuck me the least, you know? And so I wound up giving it to media, I believe. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever saw a fucking penny. And uh, then Positiva came. Nick Hawks came. Great guy, Nick. And kind of jumped the gun where we didn't have the sample cleared. And we wound up paying probably the biggest sample clearance fee in the history of um, samples. I mean, that Puffy is the, wasn't even in the vicinity of what the fuck we paid for that sample. And... Um, it was a lot of hard. But did Chicago give you guys a hard time at first with it? Well, what happened was there was a lawyer that represent them, and she just really uh, she's responsible for a lot of my hair loss. Um, Chicago, the group didn't give a fuck because I think Hawk Walensky and um, Danny Serafine. I don't even know if they were still part of it at that point. They wrote the record. So because they wrote the record, they had the publishing interest, the master, Chicago owned. They were no longer through Sony. And ironically, they wound up getting through fucking Rhino, which <laughs> that would have been nice if it would happened earlier because I was part of the company. But listen, it all worked out. And I mean, I, I share the history books with Chicago. 
So you go back to the first question you asked me, how do you find music? My sister, which turned me on to Chicago, blows my mind that I have something in the history books with that. And um, listen, it was uh, still a very credible record, which I love the fact that people care 25 years fucking later. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Did you... um, did you write the figure in the in your story of how much you paid for the clearance? That clearance was thirty thousand dollars. Puffy at his peak was paying five thousand. The reason why? Well, what happened is, well, well, listen to me. Sampling that I could do a three-hour show on sampling. Sampling problem is. You can. The reason why people don't want to clear samples is when you're doing a dance track. Let's say, let's just say right now, you and I say, you know what? We have this idea. Let's do a Johnny D. Lenny Fontana thing. We're gonna take "I'm Coming Out" by Diana Ross. Wow, that's a great fucking idea. You and I go to. We get it. We flip the fucking thing around. We go to Universal to clear that. Then we have to get the clearance through Nile Rogers, the whole chic thing with the publishing. They're gonna treat us like this is gonna sell. 5 million albums. If Puffy goes to them, he they're going to treat him like it's going to sell 5 million. Now, we might only sell 300 pieces of vinyl. They're not going to make the accommodation for us. And that's the issue. So that's why people say, you know, you, you're raw, whatever. It's I think more people would want to do things legitimately. But how, how do you tell people, well, house music isn't as important. <laughs> or house music isn't like real. Because that's in essence what you're saying. You're saying that Biggie is going to sell 5 million albums and you're going to sell 15,000 pieces of vinyl. So how are we going to work that out? And I just, you know, so because Chicago and kind of Positiva jumped the gun, that's why they were able to go to our, go for our throat because the record was out already. It's not like today. Oh, it's up digitally. Take it down. Two seconds is down. Nobody even has a memory. It's gone. See ya. Just as, you know, Positive, what would they ship? 200,000 first fucking week? You know, like it was, it was an issue. So we got hit over the head, paid a fortune of money. Um, but you know what? The record's still a hit. And how, I, as I, we I all think, say, a hit is a hit is a hit is a hit. No matter what just- and I, I got to say, I think it's the most successful disco sample hit in house history. I mean, I, I don't know of another that's next to it. I think it's the. Biggest one, it's, and it's still credible. It's, and then you get like a situation with Pitbull. So now you say, okay, so Pitbull, which I, in my heart, I think Pitbull would have come to us, but those Italian 117, whatever the fuck those guys who did other thing where they ripped off the bam, 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 the four notes. Uh, that, was, argue, that was Nicola Fasano. Yeah, okay. So, so that guy, so instead of them coming to us, Patrick Boxey supposedly went directly to Chicago. They fucked Kenny and I out of that, which was wrong because that wasn't street player. That was the bomb. Those four notes of the bomb. Kenny turned that into a different copyright. So it's a it's one of those weird. So does that fall under does that fall under the category of an interpolation because he rephrased it differently? Well, listen, I'll put it to you this way. I, I had this argument years ago. You know, Puffy would find a sample, right? And then Irv Gotti would come out and sample Puffy. To me, it almost shouldn't be allowed. So it's like those guys in Italy basically sampled the bomb. And let's just say they had a better deal with Chicago than dealing with us. 
they were able to, like, that's bullshit. Those four notes are the bomb. That's not Street Player. That's a new fucking song. When the RZA took um, the Charmels with Cream, ding, 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 and he looped that. That became Wu-Tang Clan Cream. Okay? If you now sample the Cream instrumental, that's a RZA thing. That shouldn't go back to fucking the Charmels. In other words, the Charmels are going to get their taste because the RZA cleared it, which gives Isaac Hayes and that whole situation their money. But that should say so-and-so sampled Wu-Tang Cream from RZA, Isaac Hayes, and Boom. Pitbull should say sample from Boom, the bomb. Kay Gonzalez, Danny Seraphine, Pork Walensky. That's how that should be. And we got shifted out of that, shafted out of that, which was a fucking, um, that's bullshit, quite honestly. That's bullshit. So I see. So you're saying they should pay tribute where tribute needs to be paid. But say, listen, it's just what it is. Look, well, listen, in the court of law, they're going to say, this is a Chicago master. I get that. But give me 20 jurors and say, listen, I'm going to play four notes for you. What do you hear? Bam, 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 bam. You hear street play or you hear the bomb? The bomb made those four fucking notes. Can I tell you the truth? Then not, if you, not if you're going against me. No, no, no. I'm going to tell the truth. When I heard it, the first time the Pitbull record, I said, that's Kenny's record. That's what I said. I mean, that's- Hold on. Hold on. But I do know where the history of the record comes from. Because we knew it was Chicago Street Player. Yes. And that one. Okay. But it's so iconic because we remember hearing, in fact, that horn part is more popular from the Bucketheads. Of course it is. Than it was from the Phil Ramon production. Am I correct? Phil Ramon produced the original production, correct? Yes. But look at this way. Street Player, in the history of Chicago, was probably one of their only stiffs. Chicago 13, worst selling album they've ever had. This record made that one stiff a hit. Literally, in the history of Chicago, their least selling record ever, Chicago 13. I know. This is right in between them doing the power ballads and ending their 70s sound. That was the whole thing, yes. That, that was, was that one thing. album they where they went, yes. where actually they got dropped because of that last album. Yes. That was that was the one that went, see yes. ya. So, you know, but but listen, of course, but but listen, the sampling thing, that's something that over the years... I, I don't know where that goes. That's the court, a different judge, what people hear. I had a Tori Amos record, which went to number one. Arista does Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which they put People Hold On on top of it. And I'm like, that's the fucking Armand track. And like nobody wanted to like go sue Arista. I'm like, what are you kidding me? And they wound up sampling. Well, your, point, your, your argument's correct because what happens is as the generations change, to the generation that was coming up at that time would have been in their 19 to 25 age group, okay? Which would have been that pop that pop record of Kenny Dope. Would have been a popular record. They would have known it as the Bucketheads, not ever knowing about a Chicago record. Okay? But, 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 but if you go a step further than that, the truth of the matter is Street Player wasn't that big of a record that even people our age would know it. I mean, listen, you're a club guy. I'm a club guy. This is what we do. It's That's all a business. club record. That was a club record all the way. 
But like your, your wife might not know that. Your wife might not. My sister didn't know Street Player. And she turned me on to Chicago in the first place. I had to tell my neighbor because they all they know those records, three, you know, uh, uh, 24 to 1 and all the big records. Yes. Saturday in the Park. That's Chicago. When you talk about Chicago, you say Saturday in the Park. Color My World, Beginnings. If yeah, you're the Beginnings. Now, all that, yes. And I love them. And in fact, it's funny. I went to see them in Coney Island, yes. Chicago, and they actually performed the they record. They do the fucking bomb. They do the street player record. I'm shocked. They actually, they actually do the fucking bomb. Yeah, I know. What I'm saying is they actually perform. They actually do the whole rendition. They do a part when they do bad, bad. Yeah, and, they, and the crazy part was I renamed it wrong. It says street sounds swirl through my mind. I said that's not gonna that's not gonna flow right. These sounds wrong. I wrote that. That's what I said. It said. Meanwhile, I re. It said Who'd you say street. that to? Wait, 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 wait. Who'd you say that to? I wrote it on the fucking record, but Kenny gave it me. There was no. Did you call Kenny? Did you tell Kenny this is what we're calling you? No, what happened was he called it the bomb. So I called the bomb, parentheses, these sounds fall into my mind. But it's saying street sounds swirling through my mind. I didn't like the whole swirl. I thought people were going to have a hard time with that. I thought these sounds falling into my mind sounded easier. And that's what I went with. They performed at a gig saying these sound balls. And I heard I, I heard it. I was bugging. You remember I called you? Remember I called you? I said I went to Coney Island. I show, I, I actually filmed it. I put it up. You said, I don't believe this. I said, fucking look, crazy. they're performing Chicago in their show. fucking words. They changed the words too. I know. So, so here's, here's something that goes... Because I want you to talk about the Atlantic story. But here, before we even go to the Atlantic story... The um, case of Pharrell and Marvin Gaye. I, I don't believe that whatsoever. I want to know your that, take on I that. I thought that was total bullshit. I thought that that almost that almost came through as some racist shit. I don't even know what you call it, but 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 Pharrell's half black, so I I don't really understand that. I know Pharrell. I met him. I knew him before he blew up, and Rich Christina was tight with him, and we spent a lot of time. I don't. First of all, I was always told you can't sue for drums. I was always told that because the Buckethead's drums have been lifted by a million motherfuckers, and I was told you can't go after that. That thing, it's not even a sample. I, I, I cannot believe that. I think that was a wrong Well, how does thing. it categorize then? Is it a replay? What, what it, because when you listen to the one-to-one, when you listen to the one-to-ones, it's very close. So it's how close, they... but, but but like I said, you know how many drums have been lifted by there are so many real drum loops that have been robbed. I didn't I didn't hear that. I didn't even hear it. Like when I heard the thing, I mean personally, I can't stand got to give it up to begin with, but I I, I I I cannot believe that they had to give up money. I think honestly, there was a there was a backlash for Robin Thick. Robin Thick is not liked. Robin Thick got on the side. Robin Thick pissed somebody off, honestly. I'm going to tell you the truth. He was with that chick. He cheated on her. Something with Robin Thicke. And I, I honestly feel that's why they went after him. I really do. In my heart, that's where that was. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good thing. You know what? I always yes, say... Anyway, listen, you're telling me when Mark Ronson does Uptown Funk, okay? So now you're going to tell me he does Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars. You do Uptown Funk you up. So now you do that, right? So you bring that to your A&R guy. Most of these A&R guys don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So now you put it out. Everything's all good. Then somebody says, hey, wait a second. Oops. Upside your head. Say, oops, upside. All of a sudden, oh, wow. 
the Gap Band. That that's that's a fucking different story. That was the first thing I said when I heard it. I said that's Gap Band line. Read, yeah. read with with the rhythm and all. Just change the words. You just you, you know you have a lot of people that go for it and listen. Some people get lucky. I just told you the Tory Amos, which we'll get to. They fucking robbed my whole shit. We didn't even go after them, which I I even got Ahmed Erdogan about. I was so pissed. I was like, how can we not go after them? So um, there he is. Number one music guy in the world. And Ahmed Erdogan. <laughs> nice little joke to actually. Okay, okay, so so <laughs> all right. All right, so you do a street information network. Eventually, that ends. You start Henry Street with Tommy's North. I, I, I start Henry and Silvio Tancredi. Silvio, Silvio, rest in peace. Great guy. Peace. Phenomenal times there, and we uh, we did a lot of great things and a lot of great great memories. And I get a uh, Craig Common calls me to come to work at Atlantic, and um, it was a hard move because I was very tight with Vince at the time, and I left and. I got there and I um, I loved it because I I, I was going to have, now I was going to be able to work with artists. And now I was able to say, okay, let me use my area of expertise, what I think. So even though I was doing promotion, because I had put the missing together, I'm coming in with the bucket heads, you know, whatever. So now I'm the guy, I'm not just doing promotion, I'm doing A&R. And guy like East Move, that is God to me. I get to work with him, MK, that at that point was kind of just slowing down. I was like this MK nut. And um, obviously, uh, Kenny Louie and Tommy and just putting on everybody I thought, whatever. It was a phenomenal opportunity, as I said before. And I did a bunch of records. And But when they hired you, what was your job title officially? It was supposed to be just um, crossover promotion. And then I had switched it to crossover music because I encompassed A&R. So I was A&Ring and doing promotion at the same time. But I was involved with every end of from the marketing, whatever. I would sit down and do the labels. I redid the labels. That jacket with all the records, that was my design. I did the same one for him. Those were Nikki's records because I didn't want anybody to touch my records. So Nikki let me use his records. We photocopied them in Atlantic. And... Uh, you know, it's, that's so that that jacket. I mean, I I brought back the old A and shit, and uh, it was great. Listen, my Atlantic years were unbelievable, and um, I had a phenomenal time. I had a great run, and I did some heavy damage there. And the, one of the people that gave me the biggest opportunities was um, Vicky James, who was the head of marketing. She made sure whatever came through that door, they met with me. Whereas A and R stuff and promotion stuff. They kind of like, yeah, here and there, but Vicky makes sure, oh, Pet Shop Boys, got to meet with Johnny D. Oh, boom. And then what did she do one day? She said, hey, John, we have this uh, we have this girl, Tori Amos, that we're going to, you know, I want you to meet her, and we, we should do some stuff together. So there was a place called Addition Salt, a uh, Chinese place, incredible, right by Times Square, by the Danic District. And myself, Vicky Jemais, Tori Amos, and John Witherspoon, who's now Vicky, um, Tori Amos' manager, used to be her road manager. And we go, and I have no idea who Tori is. And I'm starving. I didn't eat all day. I was in meetings all fucking day. And I'm just like, yeah, could you pass the fried rice or whatever? She's looking at me. And we're sitting there eating, drinking. And we're really, really cool. We're getting along. I think she loved the fact that I had no idea who she was because everybody was up her ass. So I said, listen to me, Tori, worst case scenario, I'll do mixes. 
3,000 DJs who never heard of you will hear you. Best case scenario, we'll have a hit. So she's like, all right, whatever. Everything's all good. I get to work the next morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. I put on my computer. My computer is flooded with internal emails. Oh, my God. Were you a Tory? Did, did you keep a fork? Did you keep the spoon? Did you have a napkin? I'm like, these people are fucking nuts. Then I looked into how big her reach was. And I was like, holy shit. Like, she's, you know, really fucking, she's big. So I said, listen, I have this idea. Let me get 10 cassettes. And I'm going to send them out to 10 people. I think I did Junior Vasquez and MK and Tenegli, all different. I said, do me a favor. Let me know which song you think on this album, the Boys for Pele album, you would want to do. So people got back to me with different things. And there was a record called Horses and different things. And I really wanted to use MK. Because before, when I was at Sin, I was promoting MK. I was basically MK's manager without getting paid. I was MK. Eddie Medora that was in the room with me wanted to jump out the fucking window. I was playing MK all day. He's like, you got to stop. And it was just MK, every fucking dub. I was just, I couldn't get enough MK. I would take a break for Dr. Dre G. Nightcrawlers all the way. I was so... Yeah, and I, I, I promoted Nightcrawlers, by the way. But it, I mean, this is pre-even the early shit. So anyway, MK, Mark and I got very close. I'm very close to his brother. Mark knew I was doing. Marcy Weber, who was his manager, knew. Like, listen, this fucking guy, Johnny D, like, he's promoting you for free. Like, Vince wanted to kill me. I'm like, Vince, this guy's like the hottest thing. Anyway, I want to, so what do I do? I got this Tori Amos project. So I go to Armand. Armand says, I'll kill whatever you give me. So that took Armando out of the picture, meaning, great, whatever I get from somebody, Armando will do the other side, whatever it's going to be. So MK says, I like this professional widow record. So let's go on record and give MK credit. If it wasn't for MK, the Armand stardom might not have happened. Because, well, so let's say superstardom, because Armand was, you know, Armand's Armand. I mean, can't take shit away from him, but this record put him through the fucking stratosphere. And it was MK who said, I want to do professional widow. So he gives me a professional word. I give him the parts. So I give them to Armand. This is a true story. So MK's doing it. And MK puts together a great remix. But he keeps the vocals in, which say, star fucker, just like my daddy. Explicit, whatever. But it's a little bit. But, you know, MK did his dub, loved the whole thing. I give it to Armand. He said, listen, having a hard time with the vocal, I can't get it, you know, in time. So I said, do a drop. And just put as much in it. Because at this point, I have no idea. She's going to be offended. She's going to be into it. Is she hip? Is she approved? Who the fuck knows? I don't know what she was going to be into. So I wanted to get approval. So I said, listen, do a drop. And then build it back up. And for the DJs that are fucking whack, we'll do a thing, just a dub, where there's no drop. Which is exactly what he did. Which turned into the formula. Then it was the Spin Spin Sugar, the fucking Sneaker Pimps, and the fucking New Eureka Runaway, the Faithless. Then that became his fucking sound. But that was my fucking idea. Anyway, comes to the office with the dad. The MK mix I had, I liked it. It was cool. But, you know, it was, you know, I was like, you know, it was a great house mix. I put the Armand mix in. Now, my office at the time was literally the size of a shoebox. And I'm sandwiched between the heavy metal guy and, like, the light FM chick, okay? I got these crazy JBL speakers and things. And I put on this fucking thing. I look up at my, I got nine people in my office to like, what the fuck is this? They're like, I had to bring it close. Now I'll be saying, bring it close to my lips. It's got to be big. She was raped before. 
So I'm like, oh my God, like he's got no fucking idea. Is she going to now get flashbacks to the rape? All this crazy shit's going through my, but the track is fucking undeniable, right? So I'm on set. I'm like, yo, you fucking destroyed this thing. It's incredible, blah, blah, blah. I make a cassette. I send Tori the thing, the MK mix, the Armand mix, whatever. Month goes by, don't hear shit. I hit Vicky Jamez. I said, Vic, have you heard from Tori? No, I haven't heard nothing. Month later, Tori calls. She says, Johnny, I'm in Germany. My tour bus broke down. I put the cassette in. Everybody went fucking crazy. You got to put this out. Wow. Opportunity, right? I finally got the opportunity to do it. I put the fucking record out. In the history of the music business, I don't think there's been a P&L like that. Armand always did, but we were very close at that time. Did me a great favor, didn't charge me a lot. MK didn't charge me a lot. The only person who worked the record was me and this girl in the UK, who was my girl. That was it. Nobody spent a fucking dime. So millions of copies. One of the biggest successes for fuck Atlantic in music. Because it was just me. I didn't hire any. So was it cost? Was it cost for Atlantic to put this record out? And what do you think was the actual total insight? At that time, at that time, I gave. Which is funny. Todd had gotten eight thousand for missing when he was getting twenty and change. Okay, but see, I wasn't trying to lowball guys for me. I was trying to stay in the game. I didn't have the luxury of a Frank Sorallo or a Hoshkarelli where they're having $30,000, $40,000 budgets. I was getting these bullshit budgets. I was like, guys, I want to I wanna get DJ Sneak to do tour. Like, I, I want to bring the underground to the fucking pop world. That was my goal. I wanted to, you know, mesh worlds. I wasn't, okay, this guy's big right now. I, I, don't, wasn't, I wanted to create the next motherfucker. That was my goal. So I didn't, I was trying to, I, I had to beg for money. Oman got 10. He was turning down 80s, literally 80 grand turned down. He got it for 10. MK8, okay. What did it do? I mean, MK is having an incredible research right now. What did the Tori Amos record do for Oman? How many records did he do for 80 grand that nobody gave a fuck about? This record put him through fucking space. Now, he's an incredible talent, and I'm not going to sit here and claim Armand's talent. I'm, I, was, I fucking discovered him. But, you know, that's a big fucking record. That's Funk Phenomena. Big record. So I'm tied to a lot of these records. So whether somebody wants to sit back and be like, yeah, Johnny D talks a lot of shit. Well, you could say that, but it's all kind of fact. And it's all, I'm not saying anything kind of out of line. I mean, when you look at these things, I mean, I look at it this way. If I'm Armand, and you say Johnny D, if I don't instantly think of you don't know me, Tori Amerson Funk Phenomena, which are the three highlights of his fucking career, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, am I crazy? I mean, I, I don't I don't really understand that. So I um I I've had different people, you know, just just yeah, I let I, me, I, let I, me, I, let I, me I call the house. Let music me play devil's music. advocate. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah. Lenny, you know, I know you're friends with Johnny, but you know. Johnny's always got to say, me, 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 me. Why? You understand that, Johnny? They all say to me, why do you say I did this? I'll, t- I'll tell you why. And, and you explain it in your I'm, words. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why. Because for whatever reason, there's the Ronnie Dangerfield no respect factor. I don't know if it's a white thing. I, I, I honestly, I don't know what it is. But, I mean, history, history. If you want to sit back and say you did all these fucking things, I mean, it's, 
it's it's in the books. I mean, I if I wasn't here to tell this story, anybody doing a fraction of research is going to tell you my involvement. Well, you can look at the fucking records and look at the credits. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. These are things that happen. That right there, everybody dance. I pulled those multis back in '96. To this day, there are people ripping off those multis, doing mixes. Everybody and their mother became a multi-track remixer. How many guys did I give it to and how many piece people have it? How many guys took them from me? How many guys traded it? How many guys sold those multi-tracks? Sold them. That's another story. How many guys? Well, look at that playlist. Masters at Work, Todd, Musto, Morales, Jason, Arif Mardin, Black Science Orchestra, John Nick, I don't know who those guys are. Paul Simpson, Jazzy Jeff. Look at that fucking lineup. Has that ever been done? I mean, that didn't sell tremendously, but that's pretty fucking impressive. That is pretty awesome to be able to pull off an album that level. Pretty no. impressive. On top of the fact that you're doing this at a company that Rhino didn't understand me whatsoever. I did the Larry LeVan comp and Ashburn Simpson and Old Dirty Bastard and uh, Brandy, and they looked at me like I had four fucking heads. They don't understand any of it. I had, I had hundreds of projects on hold before I was let go. And they, um, they don't really understand black music. They don't really care. You know, their philosophy is we have Madonna, we have Metallica, we have the Eagles, we have Genesis. They're going to pay our bills for the next 20 years. So who cares about 10 City? Oh, by the way, congratulations on the Grammy nomination, 10 City, Byron and crew. Just found out about it. Did you hear about that? Nice. And Maurice Joshua, they're all in it. They're Maurice all in, in there too? Yeah, he's part of the Grammy. Yeah, he's. I saw he put, I congratulated him too. That's he's part nice. of the album. God bless. God bless. That's nice. But let me understand the, the political corporate level of corporate music industry. You know, you worked at Rhino Atlantic, the whole, you're doing the back catalog, you're working crossover promotion, doing A&R, da, 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 and such and such. And you have this idea that you want to put this remix album together. What's the pecking order to get that off the ground? Like, what? Did, what who it's, did it's, it's, it's very hard because... You you know this kind of music you know dance, rhythmic music is um you know by nature it just doesn't sell the numbers that are going to excite a major label so you, you you have to have other things in the marketplace to point to you can't say listen I'm Johnny D I'm the fucking man I got reach to everybody I'll get all these guys to do stuff for me with an incredible a uh, discounted rate or whatever they're gonna look at it and say. Show us something in the marketplace that did what you're saying it's going to do. And they don't even mind if you lie, but I don't like to lie. And I don't want to embellish. So I want to be like, listen, I'm doing something that this is uncharted waters. They don't like that. They'd rather me say, this thing came out on MCA and it sold 1,500 copies. That's what I want to do. Don't give me the green light then. But I couldn't find something comparable because everything I wanted to do was always different. So that became. Um, that became a hard part of my job. Ashford and Simpson, I had to go to the CEO of the Warner Music Group. Basically, I had a fake out rhino saying, listen, Edgar Bronfman wants this to come out. I threw Edgar Bronfman, the fucking head of the company, I threw his name out to get Ashford and Simpson done. Could you imagine that? Ashford and Simpson, two of the biggest icons in the world, they weren't going to let me do it. I did. I, I, I did. Was, and what was the reason why they wouldn't let you do it? What'd they say? Because 
they they have a philosophy of the people that are going to make a difference. They'd rather put out the T-Rex catalog with bonus material. And like I said, the Metallica, the Genesis, the fucking... They had just purchased the Bee Gees catalog for a 10-year, $30 million deal. So they were reissuing all the Bee Gees shit and all the stuff Barry Gibb had done. You, you have different people in place and everybody wants to prioritize what they want to do. Me being the guy in the East Coast for a West Coast company, I thought that was the best thing in the world. I'm like, wow, I'll be the New York guy. And to me, it worked the opposite way. They looked at it like, oh, this guy's not here. We got to chop five heads. Boom, first guy gone. So I lost my job at Rhino for pure geographical reasons. Had nothing. It wasn't performance-based at all. I had stuff on board with Cold Chilling, I had Tommy Boy stuff. I had so many things I was about to do. Never had the opportunity. Here's that word again. Opportunity. Need the opportunity. It's all about that. And then from there, that, you know, it's like they always say the train stops right there. What happens right from that moment? What 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 gears do you change? Or what's the next step? Where do you see life going now? Because things well, are changing. Now. Well, well, what happened, what happened was it was it's very, very listen, I I honestly could not get back into the business. I sat with people at Sony Legacy. I sat with people at Sirius and Music Choice and all these places. And not to sound like an asshole, but I'm overqualified for almost all these positions that were there. So if I would sit down with somebody and say, listen, you know, I'm willing to start at the fucking bottom. They'll look at me like I'm crazy. Or with today's world, they could just Google me. And they're going to see all this shit. They're going to say, how is this guy going to start at the bottom? Because my thing is, you give me the opportunity, I'll get to Ahmed Erdogan. I'll start in the fucking mailroom. But I'm going to be with Ahmed in two months. That's a fucking guarantee. That's me. And that was the problem. That was the problem well, they saw. Because well, you got, you got and, their jobs on the line now. So, but the thing is, I don't want their jobs. I want to go. I want you to give me the opportunity to do what I do. Like at SiriusXM, if I was programming that disco channel right now, that would be the most undeniable fucking thing you've ever heard in your life. I would do shit to that. I can't get up there. I can't get in. I have my giant the experience. Favorite thing I've ever done in my life. It puts a smile on my face ear to ear all day long. I can't. I mean, people, if you listen to it, let's do it for an hour. If you don't feel what I'm doing, blast me. But seriously, go to Live 365, the giant the experience. I promise you won't be disappointed. Um, you know, I want to do that somewhere. I would love to be on like the serious app. And say, listen, give me six months on the app. Maybe we'll give the Bluegrass channel a fucking break. You know, let's see if I can bring some people that are alive into the thing. And uh, whatever. Well, the studio fits for it. But I can't even get a meeting with these people. I can't get a meeting back at Rhino. The old douchebag that was the GM just came back there. These are guys that don't understand black music at all. Like, they don't care. You're sitting on, I say to myself, I say to them, guys, let me bring some money in. I don't want to change the quarter, but you know what? Let me turn dats that are on a shelf to some thousands here and there. Let me just start doing little things. And I, and what would I do? I'd bring people in from our world to now sample or reintroduce, go deep into the catalog, make compilations that now movies and commercials could maybe sample and use and license. 
let well, let's get into this black music that we own the largest, richest black music catalog that we're doing absolutely nothing with. You could go to YouTube and there could be five trillion songs there without people like myself, who is a tastemaker, and people that are saying, Hey Lenny, listen to this. But without me doing that, what are you doing on YouTube? It's it just, you know, it's great that YouTube is there, but we have to direct people where to go on YouTube. So yeah, the information's there, but there's stuff that people are never going to get to that has three views. So um, I need a person with balls. That's what, for, for the next part, listen, I have my label, things are great. I do what the fuck I do. And I'm hustling, I'm spitting here and there. I do whatever I got to do. But the truth of the matter is to get a person that has balls and a little bit of juice and say, you know what? This is a guy that with the books and all of this stuff, I'm not coming halfway. This is, and if it's somebody who's got a problem with me or whatever, they still can't debate my place in this game. So you can sit back and say, oh yeah, Johnny, me, me. Okay, great, me, me. But really, you're going to do, what am, what am I saying that's not true? What am I saying? Who am I taking credit for that? Well, let's be honest here. If you don't tell the story, yeah, who's going to tell? No, but I always say this is why this show was created. I tell each of the guests, I say the same thing. No one's going to tell the story or paint the picture better than the person that was actually there. Yes. So well, I, I, I think that, listen, I think that the downside a lot of the time is you do have people that um, have a bad recollection or they have fucking amnesia. Or there really is. Listen, I'm not doing this show for the ego side. Do I have an ego? Of course. I think we all do. Some people try to downplay whatever. But ego, I mean, how could you, when we do what we do, it's ego-based. Lenny Fontana spinning here, name up in lights. That's fucking ego. That's what we do. You, you go to Miami, oh, this guy, whatever. Like, that's what it is. You, you don't have to be the guy sitting there beating your chest, but you're on the beach and went to music conference and you see a helicopter go by tonight, a club, whatever, Lenny Fontana, but like it's this ego all over it. And that's what people are attracted to in our scene more than anything. Cause if that wasn't the case, how can you justify spending $200 to go and see fucking Tiesto? I'd see my cousin, but one day she goes, Oh yeah, I'm going to see Tiesto on a ticket for like, I don't know, $150. This was in Staten Island like five years ago. And I'm like, how do you know this guy? And she looked at me like with a fucking deer in headlights. I'm like, do you know any of the music he plays? And she just looked at me. She didn't know what the fuck he played, but but they do such a good job of promoting the guy that that's that that's that Dutch machine. Yeah, that's that Dutch machine. That Dutch machine is powerful. Armin Van Buren. That kick or uh, Chris, all those people coming out, they yeah. they have that machine well, well maintained and oiled. Yeah. You don't even know what records these guys are doing, but they're out and then and they got 150 city tour. Well, I, I listen. I remember I, I saw something from New Year's a couple of years ago. That guy Mark Knight basically played "Play the World," but he sped it up, and the place is like losing their minds. And it's like I talked to Nikki like a day after, and it's. It's like so fucked up that it's like we're not mentioned. It's our record. He probably heard it and decided he liked it and going to redo whatever it is or just put a drum under it. And when you're in that position, 
you could basically do whatever the fuck you want to do. Like, how are you going to, what am I going to start a post? Mark Knight ripped off my shit. It's like, you can't do that. So you basically sit back and you watch this guy just do whatever the fuck he wants to do. You try to acknowledge the fact that, wow, those five, 10,000 people are flipping out to your shit. But it's, um, it's a mind fuck. There's a lot of that that goes on. A lot of people rip people off and, um, it's very easy, especially today, you know, people, oh yeah, I'm doing a promo and I make promo. You can't do a promo. You do the record on Monday, put it out Tuesday because you're going to have a week of promo in that one week. Somebody's going to take your shit and put it out themselves. It's like, it's that easy at this point. You know, you look at some of these places that are selling music. I mean, it's an absolute fucking free for all right now. People are just taking whatever they want to take. Oh, I know. You go on YouTube. Well, let's start. Okay, so now the three main companies, Sony, Universal, and and Wea, okay, have now pretty much went out and are going out and buying everyone's catalogs. Like Yes. Yes. So we're going to get to the point that the big three will own everything soon. Yes. But my issue is with the big three is if someone is sampling something, or reworking, most of the people who are curating the back end don't even know what's in those catalogs. Listen, this is the biggest... Listen, my job, I was middle management, so I was senior director of crossover music, okay? They basically, when, when they redid the model of the music business, they got rid of my entire group of people. What they said was, you know what? We're going to have the executives making a couple of million a year, and we're going to have some $20,000 a year interns. That's it. That's what we're filling the company with. So Lenny Fontana has an idea. Who do you call? Johnny D. Yo, listen, Johnny, I'm thinking I want to do an Aretha Franklin thing. She just passed away. Maybe we can do a thing. I have this thing. I have this artist that sounds like a... Well, Lenny, that's a great fucking idea. I go to my boss. Listen, got this guy. Big fan of Aretha. She just passed away. We could probably use that and we can move things, blah, blah, blah. Without me in there, without a Hosh in there, without a Frank Serralo in there, who are you going to talk to? A 20-year-old who doesn't know who Aretha Franklin is? How are you going to sell that? Well, that's what, are the, well, that's what are the chances of you getting to an executive? What executive? Right. That's what I'm saying. It's not even going to happen. So, so people like myself, Hosh Garelli, Frank Serralo, People that were in the, that was, that was more important than almost anything else. The fact that, listen, I loved, I got to say, in all of my time doing records, of course, I love giving mixes to my boys and stuff, but to give Sneak a record, Robbie Tronco a major label record, give King Britt his first major label record. He did, um, I Love You Always Forever, Donna Lewis, um, Harry Romero and fucking um, what's his name Juan the the Aaliyah Oman's first jungle remix Aaliyah, I love that. Like I, I that makes me happier as an A and R person as a record guy than the hits. To say I gave this guy an opportunity, I gave Spinner to Lee. I mean, um, to Mia. I think that was his first major label remix. There were all these guys that would never even be you know, even near the major label thing. And I was trying all my years to kind of, you know, I'm in the underground. 
I'm in the major label thing. You know, my day was split. I'd be in Atlantic all day, then go to Northcott, then go to my office in the film center building on Ninth Avenue, or wherever I would go. So I was constantly trying to merge the two worlds. And I think that was um I I think that was kind of like my calling. You know, it's like for me to get the opportunity, that word I keep using, to, you know, be there and be in a meeting. And I could tell, I mean, the BB Wines is a perfect example. You know, I, I, Craig Tallman called me up on a conference call one day and says, I was on my conference call. Tuesday night was the promotion conference call. So my assistant calls me and says, listen, uh, Craig's on the phone. So I go pick up the phone. And Craig, classic Craig, because this is how he operates. Hey, Johnny, you're on with BB. That was it. That's my fucking, okay, here, get ready. All, the, all, all your, all your warm-up, here you go. Now, BB Wines, I was like, oh my, I was having a heart attack. BB and CC, I was a tremendous fan, the whole fucking thing. So I get on the phone with BB. So Craig is selling BB Wine and his Johnny D. And he's basically saying, listen, this guy is going to fucking give you a record. And BB's being the biggest fucking asshole in the world. Now, I'm crushed because I'm like, first of all, I want to kill Craig because, like, no warning, no, could have fucking Blackberry text, nothing. Boom, pick up. Hey, you're on with BB. And I'm like, and he probably didn't pay attention because he was Craig's head seven different places at once. So BB's like, yeah, yeah, like being what a fucking idiot. I mean, I couldn't believe. It's like, you know, I wanted to meet Joe DiMaggio and you finally meet him and he's kind of a douche. You're like, oh, you know, I wish I didn't meet the fucking guy. So I finally had to kind of check him. I said, Bebe, you know what? Listen, I got these guys I'm going to bring you with and we'll go from there. Doesn't work, doesn't work. I had to be a dick. And that was it. Okay, fast forward. I don't know, a week later, I go, Kenny and Louie and Bebe, we have a fucking meeting, Okay. BB falls in love with Kenny and Louie. Okay. Falls in love with them. The whole fucking thing. They not only are going to remix a record, but they're going to produce. So thank you. Album version is produced by Masters at Work. Now, if I wasn't there, were Kenny and Louie going to ever have an opportunity to work with BB Wines? I mean, maybe. Wasn't going to happen then. I was the fucking guy that did that. And then what happened? We're doing the remix, the dance mix. And BB, in the middle of recalling himself every five minutes, because every take was one more brilliant than the next, and he kept, nah, kept on like, I don't know what the fuck this guy is. It was just every take was better. Goes on the phone, doesn't tell us what he's doing. He goes, this, we need backgrounds. And who walks in 25 minutes later? Luther Vandross from Fonzie Thorne. You know, I almost fall off the fucking chair. Kenny Louie kind of bugging. They do their thing. So Luther is just the fucking uh, every bit of the legendary, incredible fucking guy you want him to be. I'm dying. I'm fine. I can't even because I, because I was such a BB guy. And then after listening to him sing, I was converted. I was like, this guy's the best guy I've ever heard in my life, you know? And now Luther comes in and Luther comes off almost like second place. The fucking BB wine is. It was like a mind fuck. All right. Then what happened? Kenny and Louie wanted to produce in Luther. That all happened. So now, oh, Johnny D, you got an ego. Oh, you got a big mouth. Me, me, me. I don't know if that's me, me, me. That's fact. That happened. Jody Watley, okay? One of my favorite people on the planet. Love it to death. She got signed to Atlantic. Everybody, 
don't mention Shalimar. She's having a hard time. This there's a, a behind the music, uh, true Hollywood, whatever the fuck story of Shalimar. And she, uh, how would you? It was don't talk about Shalimar. Two seconds into meeting her, we were fucking right into the Big Fun album. She knew in two seconds I was the guy to talk about Shalimar with. Jody, one of my favorite fucking people. Who do I put her with? Kenny and fucking Louie. What do they do? They produce a cover of Ramona Brooks, I, w- I Don't Want You Back, which the album never came out, but it was brilliant. And I had the remix off the hook. I also had Soul Solution do it. Could they have done that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they've done a lot of shit, but I was the guy. So if that's ego, I guess I have a fucking ego. And I guess I have an ego with Kings of Tamara and fucking the Braxton. The Braxtons. Braxton, for example, L.A. Reed's brother comes to work for the company. Atlantic Records, low-key, very rock-driven at this time I'm there. They have Hooting the Blowfish, Kid Rock, Matchbox 20. Not a black act, even peeping a little bit. This guy walks down the fucking hallway. He's got a fur fucking coat on, diamonds on his fingers that uh, you could fucking blind uh, countries, okay? Hair slick. I mean, fucking guy walks into Cologne. He probably had a fucking $50,000 outfit on. I walk up to his office. He's hey, what's up? I'm Bryant Reed. Nice to meet you. Bryant Reed was the guy who signed Tony Braxton. He said, listen, man, I'm bringing, I'm bringing Tony's sisters in. Uh, we got to do some shit. I heard you're the guy. One of the guys in the urban department said, yo, Johnny D is the fucking guy. You got it. Because fortunately for me, people knew I knew black music better than fucking most. And I wasn't faking it. So Bryant met me. In well, I think because they understood that you, you understood both sides of the game. You understood yes. the actual music. And you also understood the R&B and corporate departments that you were going to have to be working alongside. Yeah, but 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 that's the battle. I, we all know that battle there. It was in but, every but, but, major. But as as just even the music I'm listening to, Harold Melvin all day, or you know, fucking uh, Alexander O'Neill, whatever I was listening to. Like I was constantly, you know, I wasn't sitting there listening to Kid Rock records. So they knew, like, this is a fucking white guy listening to black music all day. Like he's more, he's a black guy. This isn't, you know, this is a guy who's, in other words, Brian, you're a black guy coming as the head of the, you know, like the black, like. This is your guy. Just don't look at him like he's going to, you know, do some fucking stupid shit. Anyway, I sit down in his office. He goes, yo, man, I was just coming in here and I just heard the boss on the radio. Yo, man, we got to have the girls cover that. You got any people that could do that? Who do I call? Kenny Lewin. Boom. Now, would Brian Reed ever know Master that work? He didn't know them when he walked in that day. So... You know, I'm not blowing myself. That's just what the fuck happened. I mean, I just, these are things with the opportunity. I had to make the decision. Who do I give it to? Now, Kenny and Louie, obviously, internationally, the biggest motherfuckers. I was extremely, I mean, I was like living with fucking Kenny. I was in the studio with these guys all the time. I didn't give them every remix. Not everything was for them. But I think what I gave them, was great for them, whether it was the BB, the fucking Jody, the Braxtons, the um, Gypsy Kings, you know, whatever it was, it was their kind of thing. Tommy Musto, another one, my brother, I gave him records that I thought were more, you know, for him. And I, and I, and I try to do this all the time. Obviously, you forget people sometimes. Sometimes some people aren't on your mind. It, it, that's just how the game is. But for the most part, I think I was pretty on point. I thought I gave people, I think I gave 
the people who needed to be there what they needed. Because I think I, as an A&R person, I will say this, and I'll let you talk, but I will say this as an A&R person. If I call Lenny Fontana to do a mix and I recall you three times, that means you weren't, I fucked up because you weren't the call. Because I shouldn't have to recall you three times. Like, I feel, I feel that when I make the call and say, this guy is for this project, that should be an 85%. You know what? Wow, we got to work on little things here and there. It shouldn't be a three, four time back and forth. That's my feeling anyway. Can so I, I can I give you a question from the audience? Yes. Uh, this is a really good question. Alvaro, Jims, he sent this about 10 minutes ago. And I've been, I've been holding this back because you're just at that point. It's perfect timing. And he says, Johnny, do you think that people perceive you as less credible because of your ethnicity? And how much does that play a role when you're sitting in that chair? I absolutely think that we all, every one of us, I don't, I don't believe anybody who's going to sit here and say, I don't see color. I, don't, I, I believe, listen, I remember years ago, there was a backlash on the Puerto Ricans with the black people saying that Puerto Ricans aren't really house. House music is a black thing. I've seen DJs come on and say, if you're not a black gay DJ, you're not a real DJ. I've seen the most outlandish shit said. Listen, music to me is colorless, okay? Me, I'll go from Zeppelin to fucking Run DMC to Old Dirty Bastard to fucking Astrid Gilberto. Like, I'm, to me, I'm that guy. I'm not saying you have to be that. You could just be into fucking rock, whatever you're into. But I think race... And the color of your skin, your your um your ethnicity plays an incredible role in this. I think that it's the better people who can see past it. You know, I go. I was a guy who grew up. My father was very much like, "Hey, Lenny Fontana, well, sit down. Have something, Lenny. Tell me about yourself. What are you? Uh, oh, you're Puerto Rican and Italian. Oh, my father. He would use that, and he wanted to get closer to Lenny." That was his thing. So you know what? Everything I know about the Puerto Ricans, I'm going to throw at him. The Italian stuff he knows, I'm going to know already. So whatever. And that's going to be his way of getting close to Lenny. I grew up the same way. I meet somebody. What are you? Polish, you this, you that, whatever. And my ex-wife would be like, oh, that's so, you sound ignorant. It's so, I said, no. That's something that I think I can get closer with someone. Because if I know one funny thing about a Chinese person or a Puerto Rican person or whatever, I think that becomes the icebreaker and the connection because I have been in positions. I've been in, in, in a, a meeting with a black department where I'm trying to tell people that Pharrell is going to be the next big thing. And I've had a whole black department look at me and he had just done this record for mystical called shake your ass. And this girl gets up and says, Johnny, that record's not big cause it's Pharrell. That record's big cause it's mystical. I said, no, mystical is irrelevant. My fucking sister's ass could have sang that fucking song. It's because of Pharrell. That, and then like a year and a half later, Pharrell destroyed the fucking music business. But I'm a white guy in a black meeting telling black people, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Very hard. It's, it's a, it's, it's a hard, I've been in many meetings that way. Many meetings. I've been the other way where you're like the guy who's white, but musically I'm black and I'm in some white meeting and I'm listening to their outlandish bullshit about what their philosophy is on the streets 
or Ooh, we're going to wrap a truck. And like, people are like, what does that mean to wrap a truck? So the answer is yes. Um, it exists. It's very hard to navigate because I really always saw myself more black and more urban than white when it comes to music. I don't let it affect me. I do, however, hate the fact that when I go into a meeting with people who don't know me, what are they going to say? I'm Italian guy. Here he is, white guy. Oh, another guy thinks he knows fucking black records. Like, and then I got to like sun them. And I like to sun them because when I, when I drop the bombs, it's, it's next level war because the artillery is unbelievable when I drop it. But it's, uh, you got to do it. Okay, so Hosh Gorelli says, because Johnny, you know soul. Hosh Gorelli, my boy. Fareeb Alvarez is saying, preach, brother, preach. And Will Milton and all of them are here. They're all lined up, li been listening to you. And I got Thank you, guys. Thank you. I got a personal question to ask. Yes. This was asked of me. And I answered it my way, but I always know this is a good question. What's the biggest thing you regret? that you would want to do over differently? Well, listen, I could, I could answer that and say you can't have regrets. But listen, I, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, we, we have, we all have them. You know, there are, there are people who get philosophical and say, oh, you can't, you can't let that weigh you down, whatever. Um, Listen, I will say this. I don't know about, I mean, listen, I have regret on some personal shit with property and selling things and maybe some money things that were done stupidly. Um, a regret, which isn't really regret, but something that I wish, I, I always felt that if I was older, I would have done so much. Like when I look at Hosh, you know, working with Clive, I say to myself, and look at me, I mean, Ahmed Erdogan to me, number one. Five. I mean, if I could have been around Ahmed Erdogan days, like when he was in his prime, I would have killed for that. But you're talking at, with him and Jerry Wexler were making all those records. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but the latter part, like with Clive, with Arista, like when he signed Kashif and he was bringing Nara and Michael Walden in to do a uh, thing and Melissa Manchester with Arif. And I, I always felt the same way I was whether it's Musto, Masters at Work, and Todd, or whatever, Oman, I would have been that guy to, like, secure Narda and Kashif and fucking, like, all that level of producer, not remixer. That's something I feel like. If I would have had that opportunity, I think, because I learned the business fast. You know, it was... I got thrown into the company. I didn't know what promote. I mean, I knew of promotion and record pools, but I really didn't know. And when I really got to know mix show and radio and ad day and corruption and payola and all the other bullshit, I was like, this is some fucking horrible, horrible industry. And people would come in with their daughters and they'd like want to, you know, oh, my daughter wants to be in the music. I'm like, listen, no, don't fucking. They look at me. I was fucking crazy. Girls will leave my room crying, and I'm like, rather than being the prick that like is trying to get over on these people's daughters, I was looking at them like, they were my daughters. So listen, go home, go to fucking college, and become a dentist. Like I, I was, uh, I just saw stuff that was. How do you come back from it? The male chauvinistic that side of it was horrible. You had the men's club. You had, listen. 
there was the, 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 the gay movement coming into it. That was a whole other side of it, which um, what if somebody was saying, oh, you're a gay basher. All of a sudden, that was a thing. I had a, I had a problem with a guy in Florida one time, and he tried to like say I was a gay basher. I'm just like, where does that come from? I think you're an asshole. I don't give a fuck what your sexual preference is. We don't have a problem over this music. Now you're going to take it there? And thank God I had people friends of mine in the gay community that immediately stepped up and like, yo, like Johnny D's not that like, what are you fucking crazy? But you know what? That could fucking take you right out. You know, you get something like that's like somebody, oh, I saw this guy playing with a girl in the park. Like, you know, you, these are things that with the social media and the world we're living in, I mean, you know, anything could be taken out of context. You know, I mean, listen, I'm not saying I'm the fucking most politically correct guy on the planet by any means. You know, I've said, but I'm a funny guy. I try to fucking make light of things. And like I said before, you know, what do you mean by, what do you mean by funny? Like clown, like funny clown? <laughs> exactly. Like I make you laugh. Exactly. I will tell you a funny story about Hosh Gorelli since he was on there. So, you know, I used to go to all the record companies in the late eighties and everybody was like, Hosh, Hosh, Hosh. Like what, what 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 the fuck is a hosh, you know? And that, that was getting like who what, what is hosh? Oh hosh and Joey Carvello and this guy and everybody's talking about hosh and all these records I wanted, I'd go in there, go on their desk and I'd see it, you know, send this out to hosh. I'm like, who is this hosh guy? So Tony Monty and I, I used to make when I got into the business and I found I met Hosh and Hosh came to the record side of it. I said it was so funny. I used to use Hosh's name as like, it went from a noun to a verb, like, you're giving me a hosh, you're giving me a hosh. Like, hosh became seven words. You, you could be hosh, you could get a hosh. Hosh was like this godly thing. So it's, um, every time, I, mean, I, I, love, I love, and hosh supports my radio station. I'm so, and I'm so happy because I know he gets it and that's really what it's about. But I just, every time I hear the word hosh, I just think about not ever knowing this guy and hearing his name to the point of like who, what, why is a hosh? And then um we got the hosh thing. So hosh is coming up, right? We gotta do the hosh thing. We gotta get hosh on, but I'll tell you who stepped in. We got Ralphie D from Odyssey 2001. Nice. And here's a, a name I haven't I know him very well from back in the day. So do you from DMC. Let's say hello to Guy Ornadell. His answer to you is, I feel like I'm back in 1991 New York running DMC. That was and, it. Guy, listen, Guy had a guy had a great run over there. That was that was a great time, man. That was DMC. That was like, remember they had that office with those windows right in the village on yeah. Broadway? Oh my god. Guy was it, it was at 920 Broadway on the corner. That is, that was just like that was like a whole other um it was just something about well that. you know when back in those days we would run around to everybody's Every was label all day and, and we I, sit down if i walked in your office i was there for two hours i left there you got a call lenny go see blah 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 go see tommy over here there was there was nothing go, like that go to emotive go to strictly go to uh uh bobby short mca go to it was a crazy time there was nothing listen like, I, I, I i remember one record horroring record horroring I, I remember i went to atlantic records before I was working there, I was up there going to see somebody and um, I went to the bathroom and there was a guy standing next to me, really, really short, you know? 
And, you know, I'm just, I'm not really paying attention to him, whatever. So, you know, I just go wash my hands. I leave the place forever. All of a sudden, like, I come out. The guy says, Peter, Peter. His manager's running after him. It was Peter Frampton. Now, growing up as a kid, everybody at the Frampton Comes Alive album, it was a gatefold. He appeared to be about 12 feet tall. He was the shortest guy. And it always blew my mind. But that was one of those record days. With really, that, with really long hair. And he probably didn't have his long yeah, hair. Yeah, short. He almost looked like Tommy Yeah, Nappy. you're not looking at him the same almost, way. He almost looked like Tommy Nappy. That was, um. but yeah, I remember. I, I, oh, is, I, he I remember. Same height? is he the same height as Tommy? About, he wasn't much taller, I'll tell you that. But I'll tell oh, you wow. More, I'll tell you one more crazy one. I go see Joey Carvello, and Carvello was, you know, Carvello, I looked at and Carvello has always been out of his mind. He's never, I mean, just, I'm going for a walk, and he walk around the corner. It just, it just you don't know what's going to go on, Carvello. So one day I walk into his office, and he goes, hey, John, come over here. We got to take a, take a walk. So I go walk with him, and this guy named Lou Sicarezza, who I wound up working with years later in Atlantic, which is a great lunatic guy. I go into his office, and Phil Collins is sitting there. Well, he's standing up, and they had Chinese food. And he's sitting there eating his Chinese food. And he shake his hand, whatever, the whole time. And Carvalho says, I got to show you this video. And he puts a video in. And the video, it's a girl doing some nasty thing into a guy's mouth, right? So now Phil Collins is sitting there eating this Chinese food. I'm trying to even understand because Carvello's out of his fucking mind. So it's Carvello, Lucic, Reza, myself, Phil Collins. And what does Joey do? He reverses it. So it looks like <laughs> it looks like the guy shooting it into her. I mean, listen, you know, it's one of those, I love it's in the book and everything, but you know, the fact that it was Joey Carvello with Phil Collins you know, but yeah, I mean, listen, that, those were the. Hey, but wait, 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 wait. Let me let me get the picture correct. Phil Collins is eating like this, right? He's, he's eating. eating like, his, and you know what? So he you never stopped. He, he he's stop. eating, he's watching the. So he's got his eyes peered on Joey's Joey's TV. You're watching this, and you're probably going, "I don't believe what I'm." This guy's eating. Can't believe. Can't believe. Can't believe. It didn't bother him. He had a good appetite, Phil. Susudio, Susudio, baby. Yes. So, uh, Johnny, I think we're at a point now. What we're going to wrap this right here to the next part, and I'll let you explain this. We understand what you did then. We understand when you were a young kid. We understand you grew up in the business. You broke your ass. You helped open a lot of doors for a lot of guys because you cared for them. You loved their music. You were a big fan of them. Became lifelong friends with some of these people. It starts, you know what? Let me just say that, man. It all starts with being a fan of music. End of story. All about that. Love for music is the number one reason for all of this. Okay. You got the radio station going on. Where do you see yourself taking this all? Where? What's the next plan? What's the big plan for you? What are you thinking? I, I, listen, I, I, as I said before, I think it'll be really hard for me to get back in on the other side, but I would love to get in a position. I don't want to say Spotify series, but one of these places where I'm in a position to educate, to give my knowledge. You know, I think what I offer is important. It, I need to reach more people and more people, books, the station, whatever it is. I just want more music to be exposed to people. It's new, old, whatever genre. Um, that I really feel that's the reason I'm here. Like I, I look at things and 
I, I've had a phenomenal career. I, I can't look back. And like I said, I really, I don't really have many regrets on the, the, the music side as far as my job is concerned, but I feel like with the station and the way it connects with people, the way it connects with me, I listen, I'm a listener. So I program, but I listen to it constantly and I remove myself as the person that's putting it together. Just like I listening to, oh shit, that was Bull Donaldson into Zeppelin into fucking uh, Gotta See You Tonight, Barbara Roy. It's like, who's doing this? Nobody's doing it, which is great. Um, so I really want to just keep moving forward. And you know what? I will say this. I, I want to be a person that's a little bit more like this because I find that most people who do things in this business or do anything today, they're looking at social media. You only have this many views. You only have this many followers. That is the wrong way to live life. I look at it like when my time is right, whether my book is going to start selling New York Times things or my station is going to get 5 trillion listeners, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. I don't want to do any false bullshit and to trickery to, oh, wow, look, he's got 10 million followers. I'm not that guy. I just want to focus on what I'm doing and keep going the way I'm going. I don't want to be distracted. I think that's going to be the hardest part for me because whenever you meet with people, what do people say? Oh, it's got Lenny Fontana. It's great. How many followers does he have? Oh, he's a, listen, Lenny, you put me in touch with people about gigs. You know, I got very turned off by one number. Oh, how many people are you going to draw? The fuck do I know? Like, uh, who, who the fuck knows that? I've seen the biggest names in their hometown with seven people in a fucking club. I mean, who's, who's to say? And I found it more insulting just for the fact that I've been in the fucking game for as long as I have been. So um, I'm just going forward. I'm trying to just really have the blinders on and not be as concerned with a lot of the outsides. Of course, I'm affected, but I have to I have to stay the course of what I want to do. So whether that's when I'm putting out records. And, oh, by the way, I want to give my man Will Alonzo a shout out. I have another label on um, Brooklyn South, which I've had for a while. And he uh, connected with me a while ago. So listen, man, why don't we do some collabo shit. I'll a and it. I'll have a whole sound I want to bring. And it's been really successful. And thanks to track source. And, um, you know, all wait, 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 one last question. Petey Cuomo. Petey, my I, man. Yeah. Brooklyn, another Brooklynite. He wants to know how you came into this craziness of collecting kicks, your sneakers. Um, what? I think that was a Kenny thing. I think one of the most dangerous one of the most dangerous things for me was uh, being very close with Kenny. Kenny was Kenny and I were very similar with records and culture. And Kenny was a sneaker guy, and I caught it from him. And I mean, I haven't really collected in a long time, but I had over six hundred at one point. And uh, yeah, it was it was dangerous when Kenny and I were together. Very dangerous. So I'm calming down. And on that note. So thank, thank you. you for having me, and uh, thank you for all that. Uh, well, oh, sorry, Petey, Queens guy. I'm sorry. I thought Queens, another book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I thought, Petey, I apologize. <laughs> Queens. Yes. Fareeb Alvarez, thanks Fareeb, you. Fareeb, I love my man Fareeb. He loves you. Uh, Ralphie, John Donato came on. Norbert, Jimmy B from Staten Island. Jimmy They're B. All 
And I want to say a big shout out to the one that broke a lot of records for all of us on his radio station in the Bristol area, Deli G. Deli G, absolutely, man. Deli G. Uh, shout out to my man CJ and Ashley. CJ. I got a lot. Oh, I want to ask this one quick question. I saw you and Musto starting to get back in the studio. Is this going to be something constant? Is, is Musto oh, yes. stepping, yeah, yeah, is yeah, Musto stepping back in? What's the yeah. story? So, so, yeah, I mean, Nikki and I are doing records. I'm doing records with a bunch of people. Tommy and I started a thing called Organic Disco. Got a lot of things coming. Uh, Mikey Moro's involved with some stuff. We got a lot of really Oh, Mikey Moro too? Oh, okay, cool. I got a lot of cool disco-y kind of stuff coming in. Um, you listen, man, I sat back for years and watched a lot of people playing with my tapes. So I decided to... Playing oh, with and, and by the way, and by the way, I will, I will end on this one. I did a Candy State mix of my favorite record of all time, When You Wake Up Tomorrow, with percussion by Joe Clausell. So let, let's not, let's not, uh, you know, that, that, that was a little cherry on the cake there. When you hear that mix, that's going to be some next level. I should have actually, I should have given you the chance out, but when you wake up tomorrow, but anyway, it's, I did this mix and Joe Clausell blessed me with, we had a good time, man. That's going to be coming soon. So we got, we got some things going, got some things going on. On that note, God bless Johnny. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving all Don't leave yet, Johnny. Don't leave yet yet, because I got to thank you. Okay. Everyone, check this out. So I'm staying in house music. Next week, I'm bringing a female with power to the game. and She's going to talk her story. We got the incomparable Crystal Waters coming on nice. to tell us her journey with the Basement Boys coming up in the business creating one of the most iconic la da dee da songs that we all know and went full pop commercial.